You know, as, as a pastor, I have had the unbelievable honor of being asked by families to come to the maternity ward at a hospital and behold their babies. In fact, to get to hold them and to pray a blessing over these little ones who are just hours old out of the womb. And don't tell anybody, but I often get to meet babies before the grandparents do. I know. And the sense of joy in the room is so thick, I feel like I can sometimes carry it out in arm loads. Now, as we dive into our third week of Advent, where the candles that we light, the, the third candle represents the shepherds, and it represents the theme of, of joy. And to get inside of that, we're looking at the song this week, Oh, Come All Ye Faithful. We just sang it. Now, this song was originally lit, written in Latin, and it's old. And like old things, sometimes pinning down the exact details can be, well, a little bit hard to do. But it's been attributed to a whole host of people. Uh, it, the first printed version was, uh, comes from John Francis Wade back in 1751. Uh, but the original, where it comes from prior to that, that's a bit of a mystery. It's been attributed to uh, St. Uh, Bonaventure in the 1200s or to a group of uh, Cistercian monks from about the same time frame. So basically, believers have been singing these words that we sang today for a very long time, and we got to join our voices along with them. You know, the, the original Latin version is named Adeste Fidelis, and it was first translated into English in 1841, and really it's, been a, it's kind of been a staple of Christmas celebrations in the English-speaking world since that time as well. Now, we've already sung it, but let me just read that first verse again for you. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Now, this, this song places an invitation on our lips, an invitation to each other, actually, to come. Come join in the celebration. It has the sense, too, of uh, imagine myself running alongside of the shepherds who are just uh, soaked with adrenaline after having met an angel who speaks to them about the meaning of this child. After having heard this choir sing out, here's their response, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. This song feels like we get to join in with that, that excited dash to come and behold Jesus. So the question we're going to look at today is kind of like, what does that look like for us in our moment? Uh, not only to sing it with integrity, to, but to also to live that kind of adoring life. And who is being invited anyways? Like, I, I, maybe you don't particularly feel like you fit the description. Joyful, triumphant, faithful. And you, maybe you're thinking like, okay, well, what about the rest of us? What do we do? We're going to look at that too. Uh, but to get into all of it, we're going to enter that story of the shepherds. We're going to read that story. Uh, the first ones who are beckoned to come and adore him. And let's just pray as we begin. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we just thank you for this moment to come together as your people, uh, to worship you together, and, and to hear what you have for us through this text of Scripture. And, and we ask, Lord, that you would um, just stir our hearts again in love and adoration for you. Because in that, we find our true life. We come alive. Amen. Uh, if, if you have your Bibles, you can uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to 
pick up reading where we had left off a, a week or two ago. Um, this is Luke chapter 2. We're going to read from 6 to 16. Here's what Luke, the writer, tells us. He says, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby uh, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had, had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. No wonder this is the week of joy. When you stand next to the shepherds and look at what they see, hear what they hear, joy is the right response. And from the attentiveness and adoration of the shepherds, we see what flows out of that is, is, is worship, an ongoing life of celebration and mission. And I think as we enter into this story, this, we get pressed into the same thing. It draws us into that way of life. So let's connect the dots back to our song as well. Um, this song begins that heartfelt invitation, Oh, come. An invite to direct our attention and our adoration to Jesus. But, you know, as I was reflecting on it this week, um, like this idea of like beholding Jesus, I realized just how distracted I am, how distracting our world is. Now, it's completely uncontroversial and maybe just obvious to point out that our smartphones were actually designed to keep us paying attention to them. They, they captivate us. They hold our attention. And in our connected sort of world that we inhabit, it's not uncommon that we would be connecting to somebody by an email, by a text, listening to a podcast while trying to do some work or, or trying to parent our children all at the same time. And as fun as that is, there are growing concerns. Uh, see, neuroscientists tell us that our multitasking habits make the, the practice of actually paying attention, giving thought with clarity, that it makes it actually very difficult for us. Our minds are beginning to, to, to actually crave that kind of distractedness. Daniel J. Levitin is an American cognitive scientist. He tells us this. He says, multitasking creates a dopamine feedback loop, effectively rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. 
To make matters worse, the prefrontal cortex has a novelty bias, meaning that... Ah, I've got a misprint in here. Anyways, that's okay. (laughs) Meaning that attention can be easily hijacked by something new. The proverbial shiny object that we use to entice infants, puppies, and kittens. The irony here, for those of us who are trying to focus amid competing activities, is clear. The very brain region we need to rely on for staying on track is easily distracted. Now, because we have easy access to distractions all the time, um, anytime we face something that's maybe uncomfortable about ourselves or find something is just kind of too taxing to deeply think about, we can simply like turn to our devices and have an easy out. There's a distraction. There's another YouTube video about the latest guitar pedal that everybody needs, including me. Now, that's my weakness. But I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. The issue, of course, is that there are things that are worthy of our deep and sustained attention. The people around us are worthy of that. The world that God made, the, the natural creation, it is. Our own internal space of our hearts and what's happening kind of in, inside of us, that's, we need to pay attention to that and more. Theologian and civil rights pioneer Howard Thurman says that it's the duty of Christian spirituality to keep a troubled vigil at the bedside of the world. Christian people are to be paying attention to the brokenness that surrounds us and not turn away from it when it feels uncomfortable to do so because we have a role to play in that. And chief of all, if anything is worthy of our attention, God is. God is worthy of our focused mental, emotional energy in thought, in prayer, in song, and in our living. And in his book on our distracted age, Alan Noble, he points out how this novelty bias particularly works against thinking about matters of faith, thinking about God. Because the Christian faith moves us well beyond the trivial and into the deep waters of the real world. The one where we experience feelings of guilt and loss and despair, all mixed in also with our longings and desires and joys. And that's the world where God is present and at work all around us, if we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear, to quote Jesus. So living alive to God in the real world, it calls for attentiveness to the condition of our own heart, to the needy in the world around us, and especially to the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. And that's what our song today calls us to give our attentiveness to. Come and behold him. Born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Now that's maybe our second question. What does that mean? In her song, Adore, uh, the Australian singer Amy Shark, she describes this obsession with a high school crush. She sings words like these, all of my money is spent on these nights just so we can hang out. I adore you. Now, adore is often applied to, yeah, things like crushes. Um, But that word adore, it actually means so much more. I just went to like vocabulary.com and here's like the first entry that popped up. It says this, adore comes from the Latin word, and I'll try to pronounce this right, adorere, meaning to worship. So when you adore someone, it's more than just a crush. 
However, like many words of strong emotion, adore gets used in lighter situations as well. Your aunt tells me you just adore the miniature fruitcake she sends you every holiday. So, so to sing, oh, come let us adore him is nothing less than to say, come and bow down in reverence and awe and committed love to this person. Another definition of adore is, is to love intensely. And we know that love is a, ver- a verb. We, we know that love is, you know, more than a feeling. And I realize I just quoted two pop songs in one sentence. I know that. But it's true, love is a verb. It's something that needs to be acted on. But there is also an affective or an emotional component to our loving. And so this song even calls us to reorient our affections, our desires around the person of Jesus. And consider the things that we adore, what you behold and and love with your emotions and your energies, those things will set the whole course of your life. To borrow a phrase from James K.A. Smith, he says, you are what you love. What does he mean by that? It means that what we set our hearts on loving, that will form and shape us into its image. St. Augustine in the 5th century, he actually defines sin as disordered love. It's like getting our loves in the wrong order, just having our priorities out of whack. It's like this, if I love my job more than I love my wife and my kids, that will disintegrate my family life. It will fall apart. My my family will know it. They'll feel it. They'll sense it. And that will cause cause breakdown in our family because they are not meant to be loved less than my job, but more so. God has created an order to the world in that sense. Or if I love my family, my wife and my kids, if I love them more than I love God, that too will lead to disintegration. I will end up expecting them to fill my soul. I I will be putting enormous pressure on them to be my God, crushing pressure actually, because only God can fill my heart. Only God can be God to me. Do you see how that works? We were made to worship. We all have affections that are in, in a certain direction, but we were made to worship God as first and best. You know, our song with that call to, oh, come and adore him, it reminds me of the sort of language we see over and over again in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 95. We read, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, in the biblical record, only God, God alone is to be worshiped. And that leads us to the reason why we would behold Jesus and worship him. See, the baby that's wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger is none other than the Lord, our maker, for he is God. He is the word of the Father, as we sang, now in flesh appearing. That's how the song ends. And, And that line comes from what we read in the Gospel of John. Right at the very first verse says, In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. Then he goes on to say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As the shepherds peer into the face of this baby lying in the manger, they are actually and truly meeting their maker. Maybe one of the reasons that it was specifically shepherds who were first given the meaning of this baby was to highlight the significant role that Jesus had come to take up. 
that he came to be the shepherd of his people. Indeed, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. So imagine the scene, the shepherds. They come running to meet the one who ultimately came to be their shepherd, our shepherd. And the beautiful twist is this, that the shepherd Jesus had actually come to find them and to lead them and us home. As the angels go on to announce, they say, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, in hearing that, we also hear that the world needs a Savior. As one pastor puts it, the Christmas story tells us that we need help. The Christmas story tells us that spiritual need and spiritual dependency are universal and inescapable, and more too, the Christmas story introduces us to the ultimate helper. And so when we turn in trust to Jesus, when we rely on him, our good shepherd, we come to find life in its fullness. The ultimate reason we come to adore him is because he is our good shepherd. He is the king of all. And so in a distracted world, let's talk about how we can practice this. In a distracted world, like how do we learn to be attentive? How do we learn to, to, to adore Jesus um, and, and there are many practices that we could talk about this morning, but here's one that's particularly relevant. Um, you might find this totally obvious, but it was just maybe again this week that I was caught up in the beauty and the significance of the reality, that nativity scene that you see, you know, the, the figurines that you set up on the mantel place or people like make them on their lawns and, and, and that kind of scene. It is, it is a worship gathering, this is a picture of heaven and nature singing. It's every part of creation bowing down in worship to Jesus, from the angel to the star to the animals, the shepherds, and even Mary and Joseph themselves. This is a worship service in progress. That's what we're looking at. And our song today with its repeated, O come let us adore him, is an invitation for you and I to take our place in the scene. And for millennia, God's people have been meeting, made a priority to gather each and every week. Where we call to each other, we say, come, let us adore him. In, in, in a multitude of ways, we do it through the songs that we sing and, and the prayers that we pray. We, we do it through the, the hearing of God's word and, 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 and the word preached. We, we do it in our giving and in our sending. And here's why I need it so desperately. Um, Barry Jones, in this great little book he, he's written, he says this, we live in, in an environment filled with competing stories that hold out a vision of the good life. For example, every television commercial is a 30-second beatitude, a story of what the blessed life looks like, and it's inevitably tied to a consumer product. We are surrounded by stories we need, to we need practices that draw our attention back to the story that, for us, trumps all others. How do we do that? <laughs> well, one of the ways is, is, honestly, it's our time of gathering like this to celebrate Jesus together. Jones goes on to say the, the public worship gathering is a school for our affections, for our heart's desires and longings. A space in our lives where we take our eyes off of the things that we love more than we ought to, and we put them, as it were, on the one who we ought to love more than we do. So our weekly gatherings, to borrow a phrase from Walter Brueggemann, they are a subversive reimagining 
of reality. By rehearsing the story of God's love and God's reign, what Jesus calls the kingdom of God, we soak our imaginations in a vision of the world that God is bringing. And that new imagination is necessary because we can't embody a way of life that we can't imagine, that we can't picture. So I need the the weekly worship gathering. I need it because my tendency is to elevate other things. It's to put things out of order. That's the tendency of my heart. And when we behold and adore Jesus, it's like adjusting the lens on my binoculars. I begin to see things with clarity again. I begin to see reality as it actually is. So one of the most significant practices, one of the the most um, simple but important commitments that you will ever make is is just to say, like, I will prioritize gathering for that weekly rhythm of worship. And then to fully engage my heart and mind and body as I do it. See, because the, the habits that we form end up forming us. So the question is, where do you want to be formed? But all this brings us up against an interesting challenge when it comes to the praise of God. For the Bible suggests that God somehow desires our praise. It's almost like he's saying, you ought to adore me. Which when you say it out loud, maybe you hear it too. It just sounds kind of the opposite of what we might expect from the one who describes himself as humble and meek. Maybe you've wrestled with that. If so, you're in good company. (laughs) It's one of the things that C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor and well-known author, he describes it as one of his early objections to the Christian faith. Sam Storms, he wrote this column on it, and he says, as a young man, Lewis was more than a little agitated by the persistent demand, especially in the Psalms, that we all praise God. Lewis was threatened with a picture of God in which he appeared as little better than a vain woman demanding compliments. Thanking God for his gifts, that was one thing. But this perpetual eulogy, that was more than Lewis could stomach. And so Lewis, once he became a Christian, he, he ended up writing a book on the Psalms. And, and he addresses the question like, why do we worship a God who needs nothing? Indeed, how do we even do that? Here's what Lewis came to see. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of of like compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. And he goes on to say, unless like shyness or the fear of boring others has deliberately brought it into check. So Lewis is saying praise is what enjoyment just spontaneously flows out into. And that makes sense, right? Lewis goes on to illustrate what he means. He says this, the, the world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses, and like think of Romeo and, and Juliet and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps. My favorite, rare beetles. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. Now, maybe your list of what you spontaneously praise looks different, or there's other things on the list for you, but you get the point, right? There's more as well. He goes on to say, I I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them 
and praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it's magnificent? So to sing, oh, come let us adore him to each other, to the angels, to the rest of creation is essentially saying, look, look at what God has done. He's come near. He's come to save us. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he worthy of our deepest devotion? And then Lewis finally says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. This is really important. He he says this, it's not out of uh, compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. You see what he's saying? When we encounter what's good and beautiful and life-giving, especially when we come to know Jesus as our saving king, the good shepherd, to adore him, the one who moves heaven and earth to make us whole, we can't help but to celebrate it. And not only that, to call others to join in as well. And it's that part in sharing what we love, as Lewis points out, it completes our enjoyment of God. Do you know why you exist? I I think the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, is so helpful. Like, we exist to glorify God, to praise Him, to lift Him up, and to enjoy Him forever. So our praise of God is a part of our enjoyment of Him. It's to share in saying, yes, God, and yes, God, to each other. God actually gives us what our hearts most deeply long for when we praise him and when we call others to join in with that. And that's what happens with the shepherds. We heard that in the story. In their joy, they've they've met the baby. They've, They've beheld in him the face of God himself. And then we read this. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. It's like they had to share it. They were compelled to. Their enjoyment of this moment wasn't complete until they told their friends and their neighbors and the whole rest of the town. And that's the same for us as well. So these these shepherds, it turns out, they are essentially the first evangelists. They're the first ones who, who run out into the world to share the good news that a Savior has been born to you. And notice, God entrusts this message to a group of people who have no theological degrees, um, I'm guessing they, they might not even be the most eloquent people around. And yet, as we saw last week, God delights to do his work through the things we would least, be, would least likely think he would. And that news they had, they share it freely. And you and I get to carry that forward as well. That's why we run events in the community like we did this last week, that 60-plus gathering. That was to share uh, in the joy with our friends as well as we sang these songs. It's why we... Did the night in Bethlehem on Friday. Man, what a good night. That was, that was so much fun. And so many people from our community came. It's why we'd encourage you to invite your, your neighbors to join us for our Christmas Eve service. It's why we run Alpha. It's why we even try to make our worship services understandable for those who are maybe coming just to discover, is this really true? What is this Jesus, this Christianity thing all about? And it's also why we want to equip every single person who follows Jesus 
with tools to be able to share their, that faith in ways that are winsome and helpful to those in your circle as well. And I know, when, when people hear the word evangelism, sometimes there's just this, like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It seems terrifying. It seems like a, a huge social risk. It, like, you might be saying, like, if I went into my workplace and, and I talked about Jesus, if I, if I gossiped the gospel in conversation, people would think I was crazy. They would think that I'm one of those nuts that they see in the movies. That's just not me. And, and, okay, I get that. A friend of mine who's been considering Christian, Christian faith recently said to me, if I became a Christian, I would see it as part of my mission to change the perception that basically all of my friends and families have about Christianity. It was because his Christian friends were willing just to, to say, would you come and check something out? Would, would you look into Jesus with me? That he got the opportunity to do that. They were sharing their joy and when I asked him, he said he was really happy to be associated with Summit Drive. He'd been hanging out with us for about a year. And, and see, that's, that's a big part of our mission, is to demonstrate the truth of Jesus through the work of Jesus in us as a body. Jesus himself said, You'll, people will know that you're my followers because of the way you love. That's how we will be known. And so when we behold him, when we too, like the shepherds in this story, want everyone else to Pardon me, when we behold him, we will want everyone else to know him as well. So, who's invited? Let's just end with this today. Where do you find yourself? Are you running next to the shepherds full of joy and awe and taking that news back with you into your neighborhoods? I know that many of you are, and that's fantastic. But I also know it's not always that simple. We often carry this joy in our hearts along with the heartaches and the fears and the doubts too. And, and sometimes we find ourselves living in a sort of weariness that seems to not fit the tone of this song at all. Like maybe that first line was your hang-up today. Come, all ye faithful, joyful, triumphant. <laughs> Some of you might have been thinking, me? Not so much. There's a woman named Lisa Clow, and she tells her story. She says this, I was struggling. It had been a year and a half Finances were stressful, I miscarried twins, and on top of it, I was battling a deep relational bitterness. My church was having their annual service where they kick off the Christmas season with carols and, and special songs, and I, for once, was not singing. I told them that I wouldn't be able to sing, but what they didn't know was that I was too overcome with shame to stand on stage before my church. That Sunday morning, I, I stood up. At my seat, as we began to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful, and the first line of the song just clobbered me. It hit me with a giant wave of guilt. O Come All Ye Faithful, joyful and triumphant. I remember hearing those words and thinking, I have been so unfaithful. My joy has dwindled, and I am a triumphant failure. And I didn't sing the rest of the service. I drove home and my mind still churning. Is, is that really who's invited to come to Jesus? The, the faithful, the joyful, the triumphant? If so, then I am hopeless. Thankfully, later that afternoon, the Holy Spirit reminded me of Jesus' invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest found in his life, his death, and his resurrection, not my own. Out of that experience, she... she Run, ran home and, and, and she began to write the words to this song. 
Here's kind of the original draft she had. Oh, come all ye unfaithful, weary and heavy laden. Fly to the king of angels. Forgiveness is your haven. Christ was born for you. O come all ye destitute, broken and ruined by sin. Behold God in fierce pursuit, chasing and hemming you in. Christ was torn for you. We adore you. We bow before you. Come and undo our hearts today. See, the good news of Christmas is that Jesus doesn't come for those who have it all together, but for those who don't. And if we're honest, that's all of us in one way or another. That's why Jesus comes, because as we saw earlier, we, we need a Savior. Christmas tells us you are in need. Maybe today you relate more to that sense of brokenness than of triumph. Here's my encouragement. I, I think we can sing both of these songs with integrity, that, that they're not mutually exclusive of each, of each other, no matter where we find ourselves. For, for Think of it. Being faithful can mean following through on your loving commitments to God and others. It means seeking to live in line with the life God has called us to. And God empowers us to do it. He helps us to do it. And He forgives us when we fail. Think of Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Simeon and Anna. These are all people in the Christmas story who I would describe as deeply faithful. They live out of a place of their faith in God. But here's what I would also add. We could all be described as the unfaithful as well because there are all points in our lives where where we haven't lived up to the life God will one day finally and fully form us into. Even in that, we could be said to be faithful in the sense of our longing in faith for God to work, even in your struggles, even in your sin. So do you see how both can be true at the same time? In fact, I feel like we have to hold both of those together. Uh, Pastor Jill, she said something helpful in our staff meeting. She said, you don't have to feel faithful, joyful, or triumphant to be the object of this encouragement to come and behold him. Singing these words, in fact, helps us to reorient our hearts toward this way of living and being in God's presence. I I think that was put well. So to sing these songs, even when I don't feel it, maybe especially when I don't feel it, that itself is an act of faith. That itself is faithfulness. So come. Come all ye unfaithful, weary and broken. Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. For Jesus is our joy. He is our triumph. Let's pray. Jesus, in in celebrating through this Advent season, we recognize that it's into the darkness that a light has shone. That Jesus, you are the light of the world who came to light the darkness in us as well. Is that we all come in desperate need of healing and your life-giving forgiveness. And as we experience it, and as we experience it again and again maybe, we do say that we adore you for you give us what we desperately need. The one who was broken for us to heal us, to make us new. We praise you for that, Lord. Amen.